You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. You know, preparing a message for John 17 and thinking about Veterans Day, I was reminded of the letter, the orders, uh, that General Eisenhower had delivered to the expeditionary force the night before D-Day. In that evening, uh, he wanted them to know that uh, he was behind them, that their cause was just. And so this is the order, the written order that he had delivered to those 175,000 troops uh, who would hit the beaches or uh, paradrop in. He said, soldiers, sailors, airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you're about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of a liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with your brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 40 and 41. The Allied nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of the Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. And the next day, that expeditionary force would establish a beachhead in Normandy that would turn the tide of the war as millions of Allied forces poured into Europe to overtake the Germans. Eisenhower wrote in his letter that he was very confident in their ability. But in the night before the battle into the morning, as the weather was changing and he was unsure of whether or not they should go ahead and pull the trigger on Operation Overlord and go ahead and storm the beaches, he made the decision to move on, to go ahead, But he wrote a letter saying that he would take full blame if it failed. He had confidence in his men, in their plan, in their supplies, in their equipment, but he was willing to take the blame if not. In John 17, we see Jesus giving a final closing word to the disciples, similar to this one that Eisenhower wrote, except there was no doubt in Jesus' mind about victory. There was no but if not. There was no note scribbled taking the blame if it failed. Christ had every confidence that this mission would be successful. And so Jesus' final words, they're not last-minute details of the commands the disciples need to follow. He's given that to them over chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. Rather, the last words before Jesus is arrested, the last words are a prayer that he prays over the disciples and over us. 
And so let's look at the words of that prayer, beginning in verse 1. These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested my name, thy name unto the men which thou gavest unto me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and I have believed that thou didst send me. Occasionally people will reach out to me because they're in crisis and they need prayer. And even though they're a person who has not sought God in their life or committed to follow Jesus or attended church, because they're in crisis mode, they'll reach out to a pastor looking for someone who can pray for them. And I've joked that I, I, I think that they, they must assume that I have a red phone in my office that has a direct line to heaven. That as a pastor, I can get a hold of God for them. And the truth is, is that I am only able to access heaven the same way that anyone is, through Jesus. He is the hotline to heaven. He is the one that gives us the opportunity to bring our needs, our prayers before God. And we all have access to Him equally. I don't have some monopoly on the ability to prayer. I have not cornered the market on access to God. Every one of us has access to God through Jesus. But here in this prayer, what we have is that very hotline. Jesus himself, the one who makes it possible for all of us to access heaven, he himself is praying. He himself is calling out to God. He is praying and he's praying for us. I can't get you closer to heaven. Jesus can, though. And Jesus, who has this connection to heaven, he is praying for the disciples in these final moments. And I want you to see what Jesus prays for in these final moments. What was it that was important to Jesus to pray for? What did he want to lift up to the Father in these moments? And what he prays for, first of all, is that God would be glorified. That's what he prays for. Father, glorify my name so that I may glorify you. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. Jesus uses the term that my son or daughter would use to refer to me when he, he would say, Father, and then he says, glorify thy name. Glorify thy Son that he may glorify thy name. You know, this takes us back to John 12 where Jesus says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And if I be lifted up. And he uses a phrase that is synonymous with a crucifixion. And so he's saying, I will be glorified through humiliation. I will be glorified through crucifixion. And here he's praying that the Father will do that. That he will use the crucifixion, the humiliation of Jesus on the cross, so that God can be glorified through it. 
And it might sound a little selfish that Jesus is praying for glorification for himself, but even in that, he's praying that he would be glorified so that he could glorify the Father, so that he could glorify his Father. And by the way, all of the requests that Jesus is praying here, all of them that we're going to look at, these are requests that Jesus would be willing to die for. You know, sometimes we pray prayers, and what we mean is, God, if, if you could do that without it being any inconvenience to me, that would be great. God, if you would bring about this transformation in me without me having to go through any suffering or difficulty or adversity or trial, that would be great. God, if you could build your church without making me go through any changes, that would be great. God, if you're on your way already, if this is something you're already about, if you could add this to it, that would be great. But Jesus here is praying a prayer that is going to lead to his death. He's willing to die so that these prayers could be answered. If we could only pray for the things that we were willing to die for, what would our prayers look like? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's praying that God would be glorified in him through his crucifixion. He's praying that God would do an incredible work through the disciples as a result of his crucifixion and their unification with God the Father. And so he's giving himself out for these requests. He's giving himself, pouring himself out so that these requests could happen. And the first request is that God would be glorified. The very first thing that Jesus prays prays is, Father, be glorified. Think about the model prayer that Jesus gives the disciples. He leads them to start out with glorifying God. Hallowed be thy name. The most important thing, the most important request, the number one cause is that God would be glorified. The most important thing that can happen in this church service, the most important thing that can happen in our church, the most important thing that can happen in your life, the most important thing that can happen in your marriage or your family is that God would be glorified. That's the number one cause. That's the number one reason. That's what John has been telling us from the beginning. That Jesus came to make manifest God himself. To show us the divinity of God. To glorify God. And I'm afraid that many times we come into church or we go about our acts of service or we lead our families completely absent-minded of the fact that all of this is to glorify God. That Jesus himself his life and death and resurrection, that the purpose of it was to glorify God. I was recently reminded of a story when I was talking with Pastor Eric, uh, I think the week before last, and I love this story. I've probably told it to you before, so bear with me if you've heard it. But there was a group of researchers that they put five monkeys in a room. And in that room, there was a, a ladder, and they would lower bananas onto the top of the ladder from a hatch, a hole in the roof. And if the monkeys started to climb up the ladder, cold water would rain from the ceiling on them. And so they quickly learned that when the bananas were lowered, you don't climb the ladder, but rather you shake the ladder and let the bananas fall off and then you can eat them. And so after a couple of runs of this experiment, the five monkeys had understood you don't climb the ladder. If you climb the ladder, cold water falls down. And then they took one of those monkeys out and replaced him with a new monkey. The bananas were lowered, and that new monkey began to climb the ladder to get to the bananas, and the other four tackled him to keep him from climbing the ladder because they knew if you climb the ladder, the cold water falls. They repeated this a couple of times, and then eventually that new monkey learned you don't climb the ladder. 
They repeated this process until all five monkeys had been replaced. All five monkeys were new, but they had all learned through this group behavior that you don't climb the ladder when the the bananas come down. And even though all five monkeys at the end had never experienced the cold water coming down, they knew we don't do that. And they would tackle a new monkey that came in and tried to climb the ladder. The reason I tell you that story is because I think that many times we go through motions that we don't even know why we do them. It's just what other people have done. And maybe they experienced the why, they experienced the purpose, they knew why this mattered, but we are just going through the motions because that's what they did. We don't know what happened to them, we don't know what their original intent was, but we're just following what they did. And what we constantly need to do through the use of the truth of God's Word is explain why this matters. And the reason that Jesus came, and the reason that we're doing this, the reason that we're baptizing believers into the church, the reason that we're proclaiming the gospel, is that through all of it, God would be glorified. And if at any point we ever come to the place where we're going through the motions, and we've lost sight of why we're doing these things, we will lose the whole point of this. And so Jesus, in this final moment that he has with his disciples, it has not escaped him that his entire purpose is to glorify God. And may it not escape us this morning, whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're helping change diapers in the nursery, or you're making the coffee, or setting out cones, greeting people, leading in worship, preaching the sermon, may none of us lose sight of the fact that this is all to glorify God. It's the reason that we're here. So Jesus prays, first of all, for the glorification of God. And then he prays for the perseverance of the believers. Look at verses 9 to 15 with me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. Jesus clarifies, I'm not praying for the world at large. I'm praying for my disciples, for my followers, those that have decided to follow me. And all mine are thine. And thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. He's referring to Judas there, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, And these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. Jesus prays for his disciples, and he prays that they would not be overcome by evil. He clarifies, I'm not praying, God, that you take them out of the world. That would be the simple solution here. I'm not praying for that. They have a job to do. They have a calling to fulfill. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I'm praying that you keep them in the world and you protect them from evil. Jesus is praying that the disciples would persist. And later in this chapter, he makes it very clear how that's possible. And it's not that God would give us some incredible grit. It's not that God would give us some doggedness. It's not that we would just be people who pulls up, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That we would not, be, not that we would be people who are just really, really committed. 
Look down at verse 23. Opening of verse 23 says, I and them and thou and me. Look down at verse 26. I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love whereas thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. You know how we persist? Now we're protected against evil. We stay in Jesus. And we keep Jesus in us. Christ came to unite with us that we would be like Him, that we would be transformed by Him. And the picture that Jesus is referring to is one that he has painted in great detail in that chapter, John 15, that Pastor Eric so well illustrated for us in the, the sermon on the vine and the branches. We are to be in Jesus and he is to be in us. Several years ago, I got down on one knee and I asked Nicole to marry me. And then we had a ceremony called a wedding. And you're familiar with those words, but do we grasp what those words mean? Marry means to cause, to fit together, or to combine. To marry two things is to blend them together. There's even a nautical use of the word marry, and it's to splice ropes together in a way that you can't even tell where one rope ends and the other begins. They've become one. Wed means to join two things together through a a pledge or a fusion or a blending. And when I got down on one knee, I did not ask Nicole to live with me. I did not ask Nicole to be in relationship with me. I did not ask Nicole to be my best friend. All of those things have come as a result of what I asked. But what I asked is for her to marry me, for us to become one, for it to get to the place where, where I end and she begins and she ends and I begin, where my hopes and dreams and aspirations and her hopes and dreams and aspirations, that they are all melded into one. And what Jesus is praying for for the disciples is that they would be able to carry on in this world because they have been so married with Christ. They have been so blended into Him and Him into them. And He says, as you are with me, God, that I would be with them, just as God the Father and God the Son are one, that we would become one with Christ. And there would be this blurring where it becomes difficult to see where Jesus begins and I end. Because we are one. That is what Christ prays will take place in the lives of the disciples. And he prays this for us as well. Because look at verses 16 to 20. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And as thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also send them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's us. Jesus is not only praying for the disciples that are present in that moment, he's praying for us. He's praying that we would be in Christ and Christ would be in us, that in us we would be persevering in Christ, we would persevere in us, Christ would be glorified, and through that God would be glorified, and also that we would be sanctified. Sanctified. You know what it means to be sanctified? It's a word that's kind of fallen out of use these days. But sanctify means to make something holy. It's to 
to burn off the impurity. It's to remove the dross, the extra, what waters down. It's to, to make it pure and whole. It's to consecrate something. And Jesus is praying that his followers, his believers would be sanctified. The instruments of the temple in the Old Testament, they were sanctified for use in the temple. They were holy instruments only to be used in the temple for God's service and worship of him. Right now, in one of my discipleship groups, we're reading through Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we're told the story of an evil king who has captured the instruments out of the temple. And he decides to bring them out to have a party with them and to drink his liquor, his wine, and party with these women with the instruments of the temple. And God appears as a hand writing on the wall and says, you have been measured and found wanting. I will judge you. Because he's taken the holy instruments, the sanctified, consecrated instruments of the temple and used them for what is not holy. And what Jesus is praying for for his disciples is that we would be consecrated, we would be sanctified, we would be made holy for the purpose of serving God. That we would be sanctified towards an end. Unfortunately, many times when we think of holiness, we think of the way that things look or the way that things appear. And sanctification is not for appearance. Sanctification is for purpose. Sanctification is for something to be accomplished. The instruments of the temple were not sanctified to look nice. They were sanctified to be used in the honor and worship of God. Sanctification is not a new paint job. It's a brand new engine. It's an inner transformation. It's not painting the outside to look prettier. It's an inner transformation to make us prepared to accomplish what it is that God has called us to do. God has a calling for these disciples. He has a calling for us. And we will be enabled to accomplish this calling and answer this call to serve through the process of sanctification. And how does this process happen? He tells us here, sanctify them with thy what? With thy truth, thy word is truth. How are we sanctified? Through the truth of God's word. By coming together and coming to know God's word. By holding one another accountable to the principles and the truths of God's word. This is how we are sanctified. This is how that transformation takes place. And as that transformation, that sanctification happens, we are enabled to do what it is that God has called us to do. A beautiful picture of this sanctification being for a purpose is that in verse 19, Jesus says, I even sanctify myself for them. What does that mean? When Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross, he bled and died that painful death. He went to the cross completely innocent, completely holy. He came, lived a life that was without sin and went to that cross and died on that cross for your sin and for mine because he had no sin of his own. He had lived that perfect life, sanctifying himself for that moment of sacrifice for us. He says, I sanctify myself for them, for that purpose. And as Jesus was willing to sanctify himself, not just because it was in his nature and not just because he was holy, but also so that he could offer the sacrifice for us, we are called to sanctify ourselves through the truth of God's word, to be transformed from the inside out so that we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God.
And when we obey the commands of God, it's not just because they're good things to do, but it makes it possible for us to honor God with our service. It enables us to do what God has called us to do. So Jesus prays for the glorification of God, the the perseverance of the believers, the sanctification of the believers, and then he prays that they'll be unified. Look at verses 21 to 23 with me. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. They may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou hast gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me. That they may be, might be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Jesus is praying that all believers would be made one. He's praying that the disciples and those who would believe on their word, that we would be unified. He's praying that God would form and establish his church. It's a prayer for the church. And I think Jesus, looking at the disciples in that moment, he knew that it was going to be a challenge for them to be unified because there in the group were a whole host of personalities with different political leanings, with different plans and perspectives on what the right next step was, differing levels of education, differing levels of socioeconomic status. They were all different, and Jesus knew that it would be an act of divine will for them to be unified in this purpose. But he says that if they will be unified, that the world will know that Jesus was sent by the Father. Because when the world sees that God's people have been unified, not because they're so great, but because he's so great, not because they all get along, but because God has helped them overcome their shortcomings and overcome their awkwardness, that God has done this, it is obvious that clearly God is at work there because those people love one another and get along, and they really shouldn't. You know, and it's a, it's a sad state of affairs in our local community that over the last several years, the most of the time that, that churches have made the news, it has not been because they are churches of love and unity. And what has become the norm, not only in our culture, but in our Christian culture, is a lack of unity. Jesus prays that we would be unified. And again here, the key is that we're in Christ. That's what draws us together. I could work 100 hours a week on just trying to help all of you like one another and make no progress. But when we lift up Jesus and everyone follows Jesus and everyone sees the cause and the mission that Jesus gave himself for, that will unify us. You see, you don't get unity because you want unity. You get unity by focusing on the same fixed point. And for us, this common same fixed point is Jesus. And as we glorify Him, we honor Him, we lift Him up, we give ourselves to the mission of His church, we will be unified. And that's the reason that Jesus prays in verses 22 and 23, I have given them my glory that they might be one. 
that they might be made perfect in one, and that the world might know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. When this happens, because God has shown us his glory and we are all drawn to him, we are bound together in love and unified in this mission. When this happens, it is compelling to the world. And Jesus said in John 13 that the world will know us by our love for one another. And here in John 17, he prays that they would know us because of our unity. This is Jesus' prayer for the church. Jesus was praying that the church would glorify God as it lifted up Jesus. Jesus is praying that the church would persist in the face of opposition and persecution. Jesus is praying for a church that would be sanctified through the truth of God's word. Jesus is praying that the church would be unified in his mission and in his love. And he's praying over a group of disciples that were ungodly and uneducated and disconnected from one another and utterly unremarkable, utterly ordinary. A group of men who were so concerned with their own place in the world and their own aspirations and their own plans. You know what it sounds like? It sounds a lot like us. Or at least a lot like me before Jesus got a hold of me. Before Jesus got a hold of me, I, I was just like them. I, all I cared about was my plan, my dreams, my goals, my aspirations. But then Jesus got a hold of my heart and He gave me a new purpose. A new dream, a new goal, a new aspiration. And he brought me together with his people, people who had the same dream, who had the same plans to glorify God and carry out the mission of Christ. And it wasn't our plan at all. It was his plan and it was all about him. He brought me to his people, the church. He called me to build that church so that others might come to know His love and grace. He called me to serve alongside others who were also far from God, but God brought them near and welded them into the family of God and wove them into the fabric of the kingdom. That's what we're doing here. We're building that church that will glorify God. We're building that church that our friends and neighbors will be compelled to join because of the love and unity that's seen here. We are building that church that our children will answer the call to lead because it is so compelling that nothing else in this world seems even worthy of giving their lives to as the church is. We're building that church where people will come to follow Jesus in His grace experience freedom through the sanctification of His Word and His truth, as they grow together in groups and change the world by serving on teams. That's the church that Jesus sanctified Himself to save. That's the church that Jesus prayed would be, would be filled with His love and characterized by unity. That's the church founded upon the truth that He is the Son of God. That's the church we are building. That's the church our friends and neighbors will be compelled to join. That's the church our children will answer the call to lead. And that's not just the church that we will be one day. That is the church that we are. We are that church. Would you bow your heads with me?